the early 70s, singer-songwriter John Lennon released a song that many consider to be one of the best songs ever written. Rolling Stone magazine ranked it third all-time, and it was also inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in, in 1999. Anybody know what song I'm talking about by John Lennon? What is it, Brent? You don't know? <laughs> Imagine. Imagine, yeah. A lot of us know that song. Many of us who weren't even around when it was first released know about it and, and uh, know the lyrics from the song. Very well known. I want to read them to you. It says this, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. And then the chorus goes, You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be one. In this song, John Lennon is making the argument that this world would be a great place if people would just realize that this life is all there is and would live accordingly. He truly believed that life could be enjoyed if people realized that there's only the sky above and the earth beneath. And many reason in this way, right? In the late 70s and early 80s, Schlitz Beer used to air these cheesy ads on TV, and it's their slogan that many remember to this day. Their motto was this, you only go around once, so go for the gusto. In other words, live it up. Live life to the fullest because this life is all there is. We should just live for the here and now. We should drink and be merry because tomorrow we might die and be gone forever. Well, let me tell you the problem with this mentality. The problem is there's not just the sky above us and the earth beneath us. And another problem is, many with that mentality have not made the world a better place. History tells us that. We also learn from God's Word that we don't just go around once, folks. We go around twice. We go around twice. All of us, every human being who has ever lived has this life to live which is temporary and the life to come which is eternal folks that changes everything that truth that we go around twice changes everything if you have your bibles turn to first corinthians chapter 15 we are continuing our easter series that we started last week entitled Jesus' Resurrection and Ours. We're taking a break from the, the study in, in Acts, and we'll be back shortly after, after March is over with. And we learned last week, in addition to the numerous issues that the Corinthian church was having in the first century when Paul wrote this, this letter, on top of all of the problems that they were dealing with morally and relationally, many of the Christians at Corinth were also having problems doctrinally. Imagine that. Now, that should not be a surprise to us, folks, because if one is having problems morally and relationally, that should be a red flag to us that they're also having problems doctrinally because right thinking leads to right living, right? 
So, so they're, having, they're, they're having a lot of issues here. There were certain people in the church who, because of the influence of the outside unbelieving world, because of the influence of paganism, they were questioning their future physical bodily resurrection as God's people. Though they believed Jesus literally died and, and literally rose again from the dead, they believed that, that that resurrection was unrelated to them. They believed that was a one-time deal, a special occurrence. So Paul writes to them to address this belief and to show them where they are off track doctrinally. In verses 12 through 34, where we're going to be today, Paul explains how Christ's resurrection, though unique, is not a one-time occurrence, but is an event that guarantees future occurrences. He explains to them that the resurrection of Christ guarantees that there will be a future resurrection of all believers on the last day. And in this passage, he is going to call for his readers to understand the importance of that. He wants them to understand the importance of two events in this passage, of Christ's resurrection that has already happened and of the future resurrection of believers that will occur. The first way Paul shows us the importance of the resurrection is by showing his readers that without it, there is no hope. It's point number one. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. In verses 12 through 19, Paul is going to argue that if the resurrection has not occurred, then what we're doing here, folks, Sunday after Sunday, and what you're doing, believers, throughout the week is pointless and futile, and we're to be pitied. Not my words, Paul's words. In verse 12, Paul sets this argument up by giving us a summary statement of the major issue that he's addressing in this chapter. He says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Again, this is the problem that is being dealt with throughout the entire chapter. Though the Christians at Corinth believed and proclaimed that Christ was raised, they were with the very same breath saying there is no resurrection of the godly, not in a literal and physical and bodily sense. And Paul is saying, how can you say that? If you believe in the one, you should believe in the other. So Paul leads with this to show his readers that he doesn't agree with their doctrine. And he is showing them that there is a seamless connection between the past resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of the godly. And he moves into his argument in verses 13 through 19. And Paul does something very interesting here. In this passage, Paul shows us the consequences that we as believers are faced with if the resurrection has not occurred. First, Paul begins by talking about our future resurrection. And he says this, look at this point. He says, if there is no future resurrection, then there is no past resurrection. Look at verse 13. Paul says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. 
And then skip down to verse 16. He says it again for emphasis. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now, why does Paul start with this in in verse 13 and repeat it in verse 16? Well, these two verses are meant to be understood in connection with verse 12. So here's what Paul's basically saying. He's saying, if you believe that Christ has been raised, then how can you deny your future resurrection? And in verse 13, and again in verse 16, he says, look, if there is no future resurrection of believers, then there is no past resurrection of Jesus. Paul is saying, if you Corinthians follow your belief that there is no future resurrection of the godly, to its logical end, you're left with a dead Savior. That's what Paul's saying. Now, some of you are reading that and you're probably wondering, well, why is one dependent upon the other? Well, Paul's going to answer this later on in this passage, but I'll say this right now. We're told time and time again in the Word of God that we as believers are in Christ, which means we who are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, we have such a connection with Jesus that what is true of him is true of us. For example, he is righteous, therefore we who are in Christ are righteous. He is God's son, therefore we who are in him are God's children. He was raised, literally and physically, to live forevermore. Therefore, we who are in him will be raised to live with him for all eternity. You see the connection? That's why Paul says, if we deny the resurrection of the godly, then we have to say that Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, we have a whole host of problems that Paul is going to address in the verses to follow. So the first point is this. If there is no future resurrection, then there is no past resurrection. The second point is, if there is no past resurrection, point number one in, in the subpoints here under that is, our preaching is pointless. That's the first thing he says, if there is no past resurrection. Our preaching is pointless. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. That means what I'm doing right now has no value to anyone if Christ is still in a tomb somewhere in the Middle East. And the reason why is because that's my central focus. Because that's the central focus of the scripture, that Christ has been raised. So if I'm saying that he has been raised and that's our hope as believers and he's not been raised, then what I'm saying is pointless. It's in vain. Second, our faith is futile. Look at the end of verse 14. Paul says, and your faith, believers, is in vain if Christ has not been raised. If you remember in verses 3 through 4 of chapter 15 from last week, Paul gives us the gospel in a nutshell. He says Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. That is the heart of the gospel. You cannot remove one of those things without striking the gospel at the heart. And we said that the gospel is the central message of the Bible. So if you remove the resurrection or if the resurrection did not occur, you have struck the gospel at its heart and the Bible at its core. And our faith is done away with because we're trusting in that alone for our salvation. We're trusting in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection 
for our salvation. We're dependent upon the life that Christ lived, the death that he died as a substitutionary sacrifice for us, and the resurrection so that we, through him, can have life. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then he's no one significant, and our faith in him is futile. Next point. Our testimony is untrue. If Christ is not raised, our testimony is untrue. Look at verse 15. Paul says this. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul is telling his readers here, if God did not raise Christ and we said that he did, then we're saying God did something he didn't do. Therefore, we're misrepresenting God and our testimony is not to be trusted. Our testimony is untrue. Folks, if the resurrection did not occur, we need to do away with this book right here. We do. We need to close it, put it away, never open it again. We don't need to look for it for guidance and direction because in this book, we have men and women who look forward to the resurrection of Christ Christ looked forward to his resurrection. And you have the writers in the New Testament claiming that they saw the risen Christ. If he is not raised, if he is not risen from the dead, then then they're all misguided. And their testimony is untrue. Here's the next consequence. It's found in verse 17. Paul says, if Christ is not raised, our sins are not forgiven. Look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now there's a comforting thought for a Sunday morning. If Christ did not rise, we are without salvation, folks. Paul says in Romans 4.25 that Christ was raised for our justification. And what he means by that is his resurrection validates his substitutionary work at the cross. Without it, he's just a man who died on the cross. Somewhere in the Middle East. And we're still in our sins. And things remain as they were in Adam. If Christ is dead, we have no perfect priest who stands for us. We have no perfect representative who makes us righteous if christ stayed dead death put the stinger in christ instead of christ putting the stinger in death and we are still in our sins without a hope in the world next point if christ is still dead followers of christ are perishing look at verse 18 then those who have fallen asleep in christ have perished Now, this point is closely connected with the previous point. I believe they're meant to be understood together. Paul is saying if Christ is is not raised, then our faith is futile. You're still in your sins awaiting condemnation, and your loved ones who have already passed are perishing. Are you beginning to feel the weight of this? Hopefully, you're beginning to understand, if you haven't already, the importance of the resurrection. The final point is found in verse 19. Paul says, if Christ is not raised, believers are to be pitied. Paul says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be 
pity. Now I've heard some say even if Christianity is proven false and Jesus did not rise from the grave, I would still be glad I gave my life to it because I've lived a moral life. I've been a nice, helpful member of society. Even if this is a hoax, so be it. I'm okay with that. The Apostle Paul completely disagrees with this mentality. He says, that's crazy. If this is untrue, if we are giving our lives to something that's a sham, we are a miserable and pathetic people. He says later, if this life is all there is, then there's no hope. So why live like there is? If this is all there is, your mentality should be like that Schlitz beer commercial. You should go for the gusto. Live it up in the here and now because you may die tomorrow and be gone forever. In Paul's mind, that should be our mentality if we only go around once. But fortunately, Scripture teaches we go around twice. Therefore, it matters how we live. But don't let anyone tell you that Christianity is wonderful if there is no resurrection because it's not. It's not. Without it, we are without hope, folks. And not only is there no hope, next point, Without it, there's no victory. Without the resurrection, there is no victory. Now, in the previous eight verses, Paul has been extremely negative to show how dim our existence would be without the resurrection. Now, in verse 20, he shifts from the negative to the positive. The beginning of verse 20, Paul says this, But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So, so here in verse 20, Paul does away with all those negative what-ifs from the previous passage, and he says very definitively, Christ has been raised, and then he adds the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says, Christ has been raised. Remember, the Corinthians, they, they believed that. They believed that Christ had been raised. They just did not believe it had any impact on them whatsoever, which is why Paul adds the phrase, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, for the Jews in that congregation, the, the congregation in Corinth was mixed between the Gentiles and the Jews. There was a, a mixed group there. The Jews, when they heard Paul say this, they knew what he was alluding to. I'm sure their antennas went up. We'll talk about it in just a minute. But Paul is basically saying here, don't say Christ's resurrection has no impact. It has a huge impact on all who are in him. Now let's talk for a moment about what he means when he says Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In the Old Testament, it was required of the Jews that before a harvest could be made, before you could harvest your whole field and bring your crops in, you had to cut down the first fruits of the harvest to present them before the priest so they could offer it to the Lord as a sacrifice to him. So the first fruits is the first crop, the cream of the crop, the best given right off the top. It's the very best you have. And it was offered again in faith that God was going to bring the coming harvest. Paul is using that idea as an illustration to say, in a similar way, Christ, the first, the best, the cream of the crop, was raised first. And his resurrection is a sign, a symbol of the coming resurrection of all believers. By the way, believers, do you know this? Do you know when the Feast of First Fruits took place? The first day after the Passover. 
You know when Christ was raised? The first day after the Passover. Not by accident. It pictures this. Paul draws that out. Now, I'm sure upon hearing Paul's words, some are still skeptical. I'm sure that that some were doubtful that Christ's person and work would have this kind of impact on every believer. I'm sure many still question whether Christ's death and resurrection would guarantee the future physical resurrection of all believers. And it seems as if Paul anticipates this skepticism, which is why he continues on with what he says. Look at the first part of verse 21. For as by a man came death. Now let's stop here for a minute because what Paul's about to say is very, very important. Who was the one man whose act brought death upon the whole human race? Say it for me. Who was it? Adam, right. Y'all remember the story of Adam, right? Remember God created man and woman? Adam and Eve placed him in a garden paradise, said, don't eat from this tree. And Eve said, I think I'll eat from that tree. And Adam said, you do it, so I'm going to, you did it, so I'm going to do it as well. And he ate, and man fell, and as a result of that sin, the whole pile of us went. Adam was our father, our representative, and he sinned, and like we've said before, not in a literal sense, but in a very real way, we were with him sinning in the beginning because he was our representative in that way, and we fell with Adam. We fell right out of favor with Adam. God at that moment. That's what Paul is saying when he says, for as by a man, for as by a man came death. Now look at the end of verse 21 and verse 22. Paul reveals his main point here. He says, but by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's the point. Paul says this, if one man can do one thing and cause death to pass to all men, then why can't another man do another thing and bring life to men? You see the point? Adam stood in a very unique place in history, but guess what? So did Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this as a side note. Many have used these verses to argue that the Bible teaches everyone will be saved. Some say this, just like all die in Adam, all, everyone who has or ever will live, will be saved in Jesus Christ. They argue that that's what Paul is saying there. But we know from other passages of Scripture that we can reject that, right? Because the Bible clearly teaches that, that the gospel is exclusive, that only through, through Jesus are we saved, right? But we can also use this verse here to argue against universalism. This passage teaches, get this, that our death and our life depends upon our link with the man. Notice Paul says in Adam, and then he says in Christ. You see, all has to be connected to the individual and his work. Paul is saying by natural descent, by birth from Adam, we die. But by spiritual descent, by faith in Christ, we live. We are naturally descended from Adam by birth, and we are spiritually descended from Christ by faith. You got it? 
It depends upon our link with the man. All who are born in Adam die. All who are in Christ by faith lives. If you're not in Christ by faith, you're in Adam by birth. You follow me? We're all in one of two camps linked to one of the two men. Either in Adam still by birth or we are in Christ by faith. And again, Paul says all of that to make the point that you can't say the resurrection of Christ has no effect on anybody. It does. In verse 23 and 24, Paul gives us the order of events of how this is going to go down, how this is going to take place. But each in his own order, this is verse 23, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. So this is the order here. This is the order here. First, you have the resurrection of Christ, which has already taken place, and then the godly will be raised. And when will that be? At his second coming, right? When he returns, and then the end. And Paul just gives the order here to reassure his readers once again that this is what's to come. This is a done deal. As sure as Christ has been raised, we will be raised when Christ returns for us and then the end will come in verse 24 he goes into further detail of what's to come in the end after the resurrection of the godly paul says this this is great look at this when he jesus delivers the kingdom to god the father after destroying every rule and every authority and power verse 25 for he must reign until he has put all his enemy all his enemies under his feet These are some exciting verses here. Paul gives us, he's telling of the coming victory that King Jesus is going to have over all his enemies and that we are going to have in him. Paul says he, Jesus, is going to destroy every authority and power and he will put all of his enemies under his feet. In those days when a king had conquered a neighboring kingdom, the defeated king would be brought before the victorious king and he would be made to kneel with his face on the floor and that victorious king would place his foot on the head of his enemy. It was a sign of total and complete victory. Believers, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to do that. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to defeat every enemy in total and complete victory. He's going to destroy the works of the devil. He's going to defeat all the enemies of God, and he is going to deliver the kingdom over to the Father. Now, why does he do that? Why does he hand the kingdom over to the Father? Because the Father has authority over the Son. And that doesn't change because God doesn't change. Scripture is clear. That the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and they're equal in person, they're equally divine, but there's a difference in authority. And you know that to be true, right? Remember the verse of Scripture that says the head of Christ is who? God. The head of Christ is God. And that doesn't change because God doesn't change. And if you want more on this, read verses 27 and 28 of 1 Corinthians 15. When you get a chance, we won't go into it this morning for time's sake but you'll see in these verses in verses 
I'll say it again in verse 27 28 of 1 Corinthians 15. You'll see that there will be authority and submission between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the end and forever. Now, look at verse 26. This is key. Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen? Believers, there's coming a day when... Not only will the devil and all the enemies of God be destroyed, but there's coming a day when death itself, the great enemy, will be eliminated. We've got quite a few board games at our house that we like to play, and one of the games we love to play is the game of life. Many of y'all are familiar with the game of life, right? And for those of you all who are, you know that to win at the game of life, you've got to retire with the most money. And whoever does that at the end of the game wins. But this game is missing one key element to life that everyone experiences, and that is death, right? You see, if you just live for this life and this life only, you may retire in your 50s, you may have a lot of money and a lot of toys, but in the end, death wins, Death is the ultimate winner in the game of life. And I know that's weighty, but that's biblical. Read Ecclesiastes to brighten your day. Death is the ultimate winner in the game of life. And and we know scripturally that because of sin, the consequences for that sin is not just a physical death. If it were only that, it's a spiritual death. Let's be honest, that's depressing, isn't it? It is. That's what makes what Paul says in verse 26 so wonderful. You see, the resurrection is important because it gives us victory in life by giving us victory over death. Can I say that again? The resurrection is important because it gives us victory in life by giving us victory over death. That's the point Paul's making in verse 26. At the resurrection, Christ removed death, death's sting by taking the sting of death for us. And there is coming a day in the future when we will be raised to live with him forever and death will be done away with for good. And that is wonderful news. It is. So the resurrection is essential because without it, there's no hope. Without it, there's no victory. Point number three, without it, there's no purpose. In the passage we're about to look at, Paul makes two very important points. First, he makes the point that if there is no resurrection, there's no need for sacrifice. And two, if there is no resurrection, there's no need for morality. First, he says, no need for sacrifice. Look at verses 30 through 32. Paul says, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? And we're going to talk about those beasts in a few weeks when we're back in the book of Acts. We're going to talk about who Paul came up against in in Ephesus. But in these verses, Paul shows us that there is great risk involved in serving the Lord, especially in his day. We've learned that all throughout the book of Acts, right? As we've looked at the ministry of Peter and John, as we looked at the ministry of 
Stephen, as we looked at the ministry of, of James, who, who lost his, his life to Herod, and as we looked at the ministry of, of Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas, it's costly calling on Paul's life at this time. He shows us here that in serving the Lord, there is danger, verse 30, opposition, verse 32, death, verse 31. And Paul also says in verse 31, my life is on the line daily for the cause of Christ. So if Christ has not been raised, this is all for naught. And you probably notice I skipped verse 29. That's not by accident. I needed to explain to you the context of this passage before looking at verse 29. Now, before I make a stab at this verse, let me tell you this. This is considered by many to be the most challenging verse in all the Bible. I've heard some say there's as many as 200 different interpretations of this verse of Scripture. Now, I'm not sure if there are that many, but I know there are quite a few. But I'm going to make a stab at it, and you can take it for what it's worth, okay? All right. And this is not from my brain. I wouldn't waste your time with that. This is from uh, uh, several commentators that, that I respect and that I believe are on point here. But we should let context weigh in to this verse, right? We should always do that. In any verse of Scripture, context should weigh in. So think about it. The point Paul is making in this passage is, if there is no bodily resurrection, then why risk our our lives for the cause of Christ? It is in that context that he says this. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, the Mormons believe that this verse teaches that one can be baptized on behalf of another who has died and gain favor for that person who has died, gain salvation for them. And of all the explanations given, we know we can reject that one, right? Because that flies in the face of, of what Scripture teaches. Now, in saying that, let me say this. Though I disagree with the Mormon interpretation of this verse of Scripture, I do believe it is correct linguistically to say baptized in place of the dead. I believe that's a correct translation, and in using that translation, I believe that Paul is referring here in this verse to second-generation believers who are being called out and saved and baptized and being used by God to replace those who have been put to death for their faith. I believe that's the point Paul is making in this verse of Scripture. He's making the point, if Christ is not raised, what's the point? And these new crop of believers coming up and replacing the old and suffering and giving their lives for him as well. What's the point of them making the same sacrifice? It's not worth it if there is no resurrection. There's also no need for morality if Christ is not raised because there's no meaning in life. Paul says at the end of verse 32, if this life is all there is, then let's party. Let's eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we might die and be gone from this life forever. If there is no resurrection, there, there's, there's no need. There's no need to bother. There's no need to sacrifice. There's no need for morality because there's no hope in life. But Paul couples what he says in verse 32 with what he says next. Look at verse 33 and 34. Do not be deceived. 
Do not be deceived, Corinthians. Do not be deceived, Christians. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. He says, stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. We learn as we study this book, the book of 1 Corinthians, as you study through that, you learn that the Christians in Corinth were living like the world. They were living as if there was no resurrection. They were keeping company with those who denied the resurrection. They were believing their lies. And as a result of this doctrinal error, they were having issues morally and relationally, which once again is a good reminder to us of the importance of theology. Many think that studying theology should be optional for us. That's what, the, that's what they do over in seminary. Don't bring that into the church. No, we need to study theology. The reason why is because what we think influences is the way in which we live. If we have problems theologically, you know what's going to happen? We're going to have problems morally. And we're going to have problems relationally. That's what happened with the Christians at Corinth. That's why Paul goes to great lengths in this chapter to reaffirm the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ and of the godly. And, he, while, and that's why he calls for the Corinthians in these verses to not be deceived, to wake up and to stop sinning. He's saying to them, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then you should believe in the future resurrection of the godly. And if you believe in the future resurrection of the godly, then your life ought to be lived in a manner that makes that belief obvious. Because Christ has been raised, and because you will be raised, life has meaning. Life has purpose. Life is to be lived in this body for God and for his glory. That's what Paul's saying. That's the point he's bringing home to these Corinthians. Well, in closing, let me say this. Believers, Christianity stands or falls on this issue of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, we're wasting our time here My preaching is a sham. There's no hope. There's no victory. There's no purpose in this life. If if Christ didn't rise, we might as well close these books up and put them away forever and leave this place, close and lock the doors, never to return. Not my words, Paul's words, God's words through Paul. But if it did happen, then Christ... God's gospel and his word is the most important thing. And the question you need to answer this morning is, do you believe it or not? Did he rise or didn't he? The Bible teaches that Jesus rose from the dead. Gives us an overwhelming amount of evidence and explains to us the importance of it. And the question for you today is this. Do you believe it? Are you trusting in it? And are you living like it? Let's pray.